On this two-part episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Rick Houlihan about advanced NoSQL data modeling with DynamoDB. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 34. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Rick Houlihan. Hey, Rick, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. So you are a principal technologist for NoSQL at AWS. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do at AWS? Yeah, sure. So I've been uh, been at AWS almost six years now, I guess five and a half years. Um, my primary focus in life since joining AWS has really been NoSQL technologies. Uh, shortly after joining I, uh, the, the organization, I joined the specialist team. And then for about two years, I spent a, a large amount of my time focused on the migration of Amazon's internal application services from a relational database, specifically Oracle, to a NoSQL technology, which was you know, DynamoDB, of course. So that was kind of my mission in life. And last two years or so, I've been more focused externally, taking the learnings that we gain from that exercise out to our customers and helping them solve similar problems. Awesome. And I love the fact that you are actually working with customers and working with these big data problems, actually solving these problems, um, as opposed to just, you know, sort of yeah, we don't, we don't for, even think about them, right? right exactly, exactly. <laughs> we get but called out. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's. Uh, and, I mean, again, obviously, this first you know this firsthand experience and all this work you do, you see all these different permutations and different ways that you can um, you know that you can use DynamoDB and NoSQL. Um, so I think if anybody is in the sort of AWS uh, ecosystem, if they've ever sort of uh, thought about using DynamoDB, your name has probably come up. Um, you've become somewhat of a legend at uh, <laughs> AWS uh, reInvent with your, um, with your NoSQL uh, talks on, on data modeling in, in, uh, in NoSQL. So there are a million different things that we could talk about, obviously, and, and I could probably talk to you for quite some time. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend a lot of time rehashing the things that are in your presentations. And I will put these in the show notes and people can go and spend some time looking at these things. Sure. Um, but actually, I want to be a little bit selfish here um, because I have all these questions um, that I've you know, sort of come across uh, and some people have asked me and, and it's uh, and, and I, now that I've got you here, I would love to sort of ask ask you those and, and see if we can dig a little bit deeper in them. But um, what I do want to do is be fair to people who are not overly familiar um, with DynamoDB sure. um, or NoSQL in general. So maybe we start uh, quickly and just kind of explain, or if you could explain to us, you know, what's the difference between NoSQL and, uh, and you know, sort of relational databases or RDBMS? Sure. Yeah, great place to start. So, you know, if you think about the relational database today, it's, it's about normalized data. Uh, we're all very familiar with the idea of a normalized data model where you have multiple tables, we have all these relationships, parent-child relationships, and many-to-many -many relationships. And so we built these tables that contain this data, and then we have this ad hoc query engine that we write called SQL. We write queries in SQL. SQL to return the data that our application needs. So the, the server, the database actually kind of restructures the data and reformats the data on the fly whenever we need it <clears throat> to satisfy a request. Well, NoSQL, on the other hand, uh, you know, kind of eliminates that CPU overhead. And that's really what the cost of the relational database is and the reason why it can't scale, because uh, it takes so much CPU to reformat that data. So with NoSQL, what we're going to do is we're going to actually denormalize the data somewhat, and we're going to tune it to what we call the access pattern, tune it to the access pattern. Uh, 
to create a an environment that allows the, the the server to satisfy the requests with simple queries. So we don't actually have to join the data together. So when we talk about the modeling and whatnot in my sessions, we get into how do we do that. But the fundamental you know, crux of the issue here is that the relational database burns a lot of CPU to join the data and produce these materialized views, whereas the, the NoSQL database kind of stores the data that way and makes it easier for the application to use it. Right. And then one of the things I think that you see all the time when people are sort of migrating or trying to figure out uh, sort of that NoSQL mindset is they think about access patterns. And one of their access patterns is something like list all customers. Um, right. And it's one of those things where I think it's really hard for people to make that jump from just being able to say select star from customers um, and, and understand that, you know, that data will get back and we can add limits and things like that. Um, it's not quite the same with, with something like with NoSQL. So uh, sort of when do you suggest people not use um, NoSQL? Okay, so that's that's actually a really good question. So uh, NoSQL is really suited, and as we talked about, we have to denormalize the data, right? Which that means I have to structure it and tune it to the access pattern. So if I don't really understand those access patterns, if they're not really well-defined, uh, then then maybe what we're looking at is a different type of application that's not necessarily so well-suited for NoSQL, right? And that's really what it comes down to. There's two types of applications out there. There's, there's an OLTP or online transaction processing application, which is really built using well-defined access patterns. It's going to have a limited number <coughs> of queries that are going to execute against the data. They're going to execute very frequently, uh, and we're not going to expect to see any change or we'll see limited change in these uh, in this collection of queries over time. And that's a really good application for NoSQL because, you know, as I said, we have to kind of tune the data to the access pattern. So if I only have a small number of access patterns, then it makes sense. But if the customer comes in and tells me, I don't know what questions are going to be asked, you know, this is my, you know, maybe my trading analytics platform and who knows what the brokers are going to be interested in today or tomorrow. And I look at the query logs of the server and there's a thousand different queries and some of them execute once or twice and never to be seen again and others execute dozens of times. And these are things that are indicative of an application workload that maybe is not so good for NoSQL because what we're going to want is a data model that's kind of agnostic mm -hmm. to all those access patterns, right? Uh, and, and it has that ad hoc query engine that lets us reproduce those results. So, uh, you know, lucky for us in the NoSQL world, that's actually a small subset of the applications, right? 90% of the applications we build have a very limited number of access patterns. And they execute those queries regularly and repeatedly throughout the day. So uh, that's the area that we're going to focus on when we talk about NoSQL. Yeah. And so with those access patterns, and you talk about highly tuned access patterns, and if you think about an application that says maybe has to bring back, uh, you know, customer orders, right? And maybe a customer might have 10 orders, maybe they have a thousand orders. I mean, really the, the amount of, uh, of, of processing it takes to pull back either 10 or um, uh, a thousand is pretty much the same, but there's other things that might come back with a customer as well. Like maybe you want to see, you know, their billing information or shipping information, or uh, maybe they have a rewards program or something like that, mm -hmm. that they're attached to. Um, and one of the interesting things that I learned from you, from seeing what you've done at, at your, um, uh, you know, at your talks at reInvent was the ability to put multiple entities, if we want to call them that, in the same table. Sure. Um, and, and that was one of those optimizations where SQL, we say, okay, select star from, or select star from customers, where customer equals one, two, three, select star from orders, where this equals that, maybe join it on order items, on yes. you know, yeah. things yeah. like that. And also now I make another query and I've got to bring back, um, bring back those rewards or, or bring back the shipping mm -hmm. information. So you have all these different queries that you have to run. 
But when you put everything into a single table and you optimize that, that access pattern, you can make one query that brings back all of those entities in one round trip to the server. So I'd love to get your take. I know you're a yeah, yeah. proponent of single, <laughs> single table design, um, but I'd just like to get your take on why that's so powerful. Why that's so powerful. Sure, it makes perfect sense. So uh, if you think about the the, the time complexity of, of a query, right, when I have to join through multiple tables, I will use the example you talked about. I've got customers, I've got orders, and I have order items, right? Let's just use those three you know, uh, tables, for example. And, and what I really want is I want all the customers' orders in the last 30 days, right? So I'm going to select star from customer where customer ID equals X, inner join orders on customer ID equals, you know, customer ID, inner join order items on order ID equals order ID, right? So I've gone through, you know, multiple tables. Uh, and the time complexity there is going to be significant because I've got a, I've got a, 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 and let's just assume that the joins are all accurate and the, or that the indexes are all accurate and we're sorted on the join dimensions. And so we're doing really nice, efficient, you know, nested loop joins. We're not doing any crazy things in the database. And we're still looking at a time complexity that's going to require a, a login search or an index scan of the primary table and n login complexity for, the next table, right? I got to scan that table for each item that comes back off the parent table. Now you might argue with me that the outer table has a single row return. So it's just to log in, but then the next one comes, right? It's the order right. items table. And now I have to scan through all the customer's orders and then I have to join in all the items from each order on that table. And that's an end login scan. So, you know, it just increases the complexity, right? Is the more tables you join in. Now, if we were to take the no SQL approach where you know, I treat the table like a big object collection. I'm just going to drop everything in there. Just think of these objects as all the rows from all those tables. Right? We're going to take all those rows, we're going to shove them into one table, and then I'm going to go ahead and index you know, these <coughs> objects on uh, maybe tag each one of those objects with the customer ID, including all the order items and everything. And then I can index and I say, okay, well, give me everything for the customer ID X, and it brings back the customer object, the order objects, the order item objects for all those orders. Now, I might want to include some additional sort constructs to return a limited number of objects, but you get the idea. What I've really done is I create a collection of objects and I use indexes to join those objects together. There is no join operator, but I can still achieve the same result because a join is essentially a grouping of objects. And mm -hmm. so that's what we're really doing with the NoSQL table. So it's, it's much, much more time efficient right, to do an index scan than it is to do you know, nested loop joins. And that's really what it comes down to is about cost and efficiency. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, and I like the, you know, I like kind of thinking of them as entities in the sense of it's almost like uh, partition keys. And we're going to talk about this in just a minute, but I, I like to think of partition keys as almost like folders in a, you know, yeah. a directory structure. Um, and you're, you're grouping all of the things in those folders that, uh, uh, that are, that are common to one another that you're, right. you might want to bring back. And you've got a few sort features and you've got some, uh, you know, some ways to limit it like by date and, and things like that. Um, so anyways, we, let's actually do that. We, we can maybe come back to the single table thing as we talk about some of this other stuff, but, um, just for people who don't know, um, and, uh, and just to sort of hear it again so that we can all kind of be on the same page. Cause I think we're going to get, um, we're going to start geeking out pretty heavily yeah. here in a minute. And if you don't understand these basic concepts, I don't want your eyes to glass over too much if you're listening here. So let's start with a couple of these key concepts. So I, I mentioned partition keys, and we mm -hmm. also have sort keys. So just give us a quick, you know, what what what, is, what, what are, are those they? mean? Are those? Yeah, yeah, what are they? So in a DynamoDB table or in any wide column database, uh, in any NoSQL database, you're going to have to have some attribute that uniquely defines the item. Uh, in, a, in a wide column database like DynamoDB, that's called the partition key. 
Um, so if I define a table in DynamoDB and I define it as a partition key only table, then each item I insert in the table must have a partition key attribute and that partition key attribute must contain a unique value. Mm -hmm. And that supports kind of a key value access pattern, right? Give me everything with this partition key value, brings back one item. If I add the sort key, what you said comes into effect now is now the partition turns into a folder, right? So the partition uniquely identifies the folder and the sort key uniquely identifies the item within the folder. And now I can start to collect items together and I can use creative you know, filtering conditions on the sort key value uh, to return only the objects that matter. Mm -hmm. and, and I really like that folder analogy because if you think about it, when I store things, when I collect you know, documents at home, right, and I'm putting things in my file cabinet, well, what am I doing? I'm putting related objects into a folder and I'm putting it in the file cabinet and because that's the easiest way for me to go access it in the end, right? I say, here's everything associated with my mortgage. Right. I don't say here's right. the home inspection, put that in one place. And then, oh, here's the here's the title document, title report. I'm going to put that in another place. And then when I need to go get all those documents for my home loan, I don't go searching through 20 folders to pull together all those documents, review them and then sort them back into their individual locations. Right. We, we put everything in one folder and, and it turns out that that's actually the easiest way to access data, not just for us, but for the computer, too. Right. <laughs> so this is really what we're doing. We're using these partition keys to create folders. We're using sort keys to individually identify the objects within those folders. And then we're using conditions on the sort key to restrict the objects that are being returned when I query that particular partition. And that's kind of the fundamental construct that we're trying to create here. Yeah. And so the so when you use those two together, when you use a partition key and a sort key, uh, we call that a compound key. And then the sort key itself, if we uh, if we add extra data in there, you had mentioned we could we could filter on it, for example, and use sure. something like a begins with query and things like that. Um, so if we combine multiple pieces of information into that sort key, that's what we call a composite key. That's correct. So a composite key typically takes multiple, like you said, multiple pieces of information to give me some interesting uh, constructs to go query, right? So I might like say, well, a customer's uh, use case is to give me all of his uh, orders within the last 30 days. And uh, I might choose to prefix all the order objects in the customer's partition with a with an indicator that they are an order like O and then, you know, uh, concatenate that with the date of the order. And then I could start I could say, give me everything that's between O dash date one and O dash date two and mm -hmm. return the order objects from that customer's partition. Now, I might have many, many types of objects in that customer's partition, but that sort condition will allow me to filter out just the specific order objects in that date range that I'm interested in. So that's kind of an example of the types of you know, composite keys that we're going to create uh, to produce queries. So those things can include things like states, dates, rankings, you know, all kinds of different things that we're going to do to try and create conditions that we can query. And and automatically, when no matter what you create for that for that sort key, that is you know they call it a sort key because it's what gets sorted on. That's um, right. <laughs> and you can, uh, but so the way that that sorting works is that if you had you know uh, o you know pound sign and then some date for example, um, you know that that anything if you did a uh, between query for example, you would have to include you know the the entire the sort key, the entire prefix yes. in there as well. I think that's something that trips people up. Like if you were trying to order, um, maybe you're trying to order a list of songs or something like that. Mm -hmm. If you if you had your sort key as one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, um, then it would sort as one, eleven, twelve, 
two, three, four. So you just need to be conscious of that yeah. to say it needs to be zero, one, zero, two, zero, three, zero, four, and so forth yeah, in order to get that story. Or convert those to a maybe a four byte hexadecimal string or something right. that yep. is string sortable. <clears throat> this is one of the kind of little caveats in using DynamoDB is that we really only give you one sort key attribute. Mm -hmm. So if you want to create these composites, you have to kind of create these string composites and stick it in that sort key attribute. Uh, if you look at other wide column databases like Cassandra, uh, Cassandra gives you the ability to actually support true composite keys, right? You can mm -hmm. actually say, I want uh, you know, this attribute dot that attribute dot this attribute, and that would be the, con the, the concatenation of those is your key, and it'll allow you to sort uh, uh, correctly between the data types. <clears throat> so that's a little bit of a difference between a Cassandra and a DynamoDB is that you have to maintain these composites kind of yourself in DynamoDB, uh, but other than that, it's, it's almost identical. It's the same type of query conditions, right? In Cassandra, when I query the first attribute, it has to be an equality condition. Mm -hmm. and, and the range condition can only apply to the last attribute that you query on the composite. And the reason why is because all those range queries have to return a contiguous range of items from the sort right. key, right? Otherwise, what I'm really doing is filtering the items from the partition. Right. All right. So the other thing that um, all databases have, right, is a uh, is some is some sort of index, right? And obviously, the yeah. what we're talking about with the partition key and the sort key, that's our primary index. And we can we're going to talk about that a little bit more because there's some interesting things there. Um, but one of the things that you can do is create other indexes, you LSIs, GSIs. And again, we'll talk about all of that. So don't get lost if you're mm -hmm. listening. Um, but I do want to talk about this idea of overloaded indexes because this goes back to the single table design aspect of things where sure. you have different values um, in different indexes. So that partition key, for example, um, it might be a customer ID for a bunch of entities, but then it might be an order ID for other entities. It might be right. some other enumerated value to specify something else. Mm -hmm. um, so talk a little bit more about overloaded indexes. Okay. So uh, in, in, in DynamoDB, the, the, you, you know, we've talked about the primary construct being this partition key and a sort key. The idea there is I'm creating groupings of objects. And those objects grouping should be kind of related to the primary access patterns of your application, right? Like in the customer example, we were talking about the partition key, uh, you know, might be a customer ID, uh, but there might be other objects on this table that I'm interested in tracking, right? Like not all these objects might be customers. Not all these objects might be related to customers. And so let's say we had sales reps also. So I've got customer IDs and I've got sales rep IDs. So in order to kind of store customers and sales reps on the same table, when I define the table, I can't use a uh, strongly typed attribute name, mm -hmm. right? If I use customer ID as the partition key, then every object I insert into the table has to have a customer ID as a partition key, but sales reps aren't customers, so they don't have a customer ID. So when we define the table, we're gonna use generic names, things like PK for partition key, SK for sort key. And this allows me to create multiple types of partitions. The object that I insert into the partition just needs to have a PK attribute, the value of the PK attribute depends on the type of the object that I'm inserting on the table. And I don't have to worry about collisions here because when I query the system, I'm going to give that partition key equality condition. It's going to have a value that's my application is aware of what it's trying to get, right? I'm going to query for a customer. I'm going to query for a sales rep, right? I know what I'm asking for. Mm -hmm. and, and so then what I'm going to do now is I'm actually going <clears> to <throat> say that on the primary table, that first access pattern that's supported by the table might be orders by customer. But I also might have a workflow that says at the end of the month, I need orders by sales rep, right? Mm -hmm. Well, my customer, my orders aren't organized on the table by sales rep. They're organized by customer. So what I'll do is I'll create an index, a GSI, and I'll use a, I'll declare a new attribute on the GSI. And I'm going to use that same naming construct, right? I don't want only sales rep items to show up on the GSI. Sure. As a matter of fact, I actually need 
uh, customer objects, I need order objects to show up on the GSI. And, and on the primary table, my orders are partitioned on you know, the customer ID, not the sales rep ID. So I'll create an attribute called GSIPK. And mm-hmm. all the orders are going to have it. And all of the uh, uh, sales rep items are going to have it. And you know, when we insert the sales rep item onto the table, it's going to have a partition key of the sales rep ID. It'll have a sort key of the sales rep ID. And then it'll have this extended attribute, which is also the sales rep ID. So you kind of notice we've duplicated that sales rep ID a few times, right? right. The reason why yeah. is because I'm going to index this item in multiple dimensions on the sales rep ID. The first dimension it's actually indexed on is the table. Right. It sits in the sales rep partition. Okay, well, all those other order items are also going to have a customer ID as their PK. They're going to have uh, maybe an order date as their SK, and then they're going to have a GSI PK, a sales rep ID. And so if I create a, a GSI on sales rep, on, 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 uh, if I bring up an index with GSI PK as the partition key and, and the sort key, the existing sort key as the sort key for the GSI, what I've really done is I've re-aggregated or regrouped the items on the table. Now the orders on the GSI are grouped by sales rep. And if I query the GSI by sales rep ID, I'm going to get a copy of the sales reps item and each order that he had. And mm-hmm. if I query it by sales rep ID greater than 30 days ago, I'll get only the stuff in the last 30 days. Right. And so this is kind of what we're going to do. We're going to re-aggregate, regroup the data in indexes uh, to support secondary access patterns in the application. And that's what we're going to use indexes for. All right. So you mentioned GSIs in there, and I want to talk about those a little bit more in detail. But let's start first with just this idea of accessing data via the primary index, right? So every table has the primary index. That is where you have your PK and your SK or whatever you want to call it. Um, And one of the things that, you know, I see a lot of people do um, when, especially when they're asking me these questions and they're trying to format that is um, they often, I think what they're trying to do is, is, I guess, What's the right word for this? They're trying to make they're trying to make DynamoDB work more like a SQL database <laughs> in that they're trying to find a way to put, you know, either create really, really large partitions um, and then use the sort key uh, to sort of trick the system into doing very large queries. Um, but but the the thing that you need to remember, or I think that the listeners need to remember, I know, I know you know this, um, is that we want to be careful about how much we're writing to the database when we're using some of these other indexes, right? So mm-hmm. for the for the primary key itself or for the primary index itself, um, we want to, uh, I guess, we want to make sure that we have all of our or as many of our primary access patterns accessible via that, right? When we want to be limited in terms of the the amount of data we copy over to another index, right? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, every index I create is a copy of the data. Right. So if I can write the data onto the table one time and satisfy more than one access pattern, then that saves me copies of the data. Those copies of the data cost me money. They cost storage. They cost WCUs. Uh, So, yes, we would like to store as many as many. We would like to satisfy as many access patterns as possible with the primary table. And then what you'll notice is as I start to create indexes, objects start to drop off. Mm-hmm. Not, not all objects need to be indexed. Not all objects need more than one access pattern. Right. Some objects only have one. Uh, <clears throat> and other objects might have three or four. So as you kind of go out across the number of indexes, you're going to see fewer and fewer items transferring from the table to those extended indexes because they just don't need to be accessed on as many dimensions as, as others. And so that's kind of what we're going to end up doing is looking at these individual items and say, how do I need to group these? Right In the case of orders, and you've talked about so far, I need to group orders by customer. I need to group orders by sales rep. Right? But order items, I don't know. We haven't defined any other access pattern than group order items by order. Mm-hmm. Right? So, but maybe there's another access pattern by order items, which might be the state 
of that order, right? Or of that item. Is it back ordered? Has it been shipped or what whatnot? So we already have an index called, you know, our first GSI that we're indexing by sales rep and we're indexing order items by sales rep, but I can also use the same index to index those order items. If I if I decorate each one of those order items with say an order state that is also in GSI PK, mm-hmm. right? And then I'll just use the sort key of the item. And I can say, okay, well, which one of these things, what orders were in this state at this date, at this date time, right? Yeah. And so those types of access patterns are what we're going to do. Yeah. And I think what I was, I, I think the point I'm trying to get to is because I, I get this question a lot. And, um, uh, and I think you've explained it well in the past where when you, you know, so RCUs, right? And this mm-hmm. is something we didn't really talk about, but there's read capacity units and write capacity units for DynamoDB tables, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, right? And the read capacity units, um, I think it's uh, it's it's three- 3,000. 3,000. Yeah, 3,000 versus 1,000. Um, and yeah. you can read, uh, it's the amount of data that you can read off of a WCU is- A WCU is four kilobytes, an RCU is one kilobyte. And I'm sorry, WCU is one kilobyte, an RCU is four kilobytes. Am I saying right. that backwards? So, <laughs> that's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, that, so the point is, is that you can read four times as much data as you can write um, in a single, um, you know, in a single uh, capacity unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, obviously, capacity to write capacity units cost a little bit more, cost a lot more a lot um, than the read ones do. So, I think what people tend to do, and this you say this all the time, is that you should optimize for the write. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people quite get what that means. Um, and that's, I think, what I'm trying to get to here is mm-hmm. that for every piece of data that you copy, you have to write that to another index. So if you're writing it to a GSI, you're paying for another WCU, and it's also one kilobyte versus reading four kilobytes off of it. So if you are trying to, you know, write a lot of data, if you have a a high write throughput, but you need to access that, um, you know, putting another index there just for the sake of maybe querying on one dimension might not always be the most cost effective thing. No, I mean, Yeah, absolutely. And we see, I mean, this is a, it's a good point because it's important to understand that when you, um, you created a table for DynamoDB that you should use meaningful values for those partition keys, right? I mean, one of the mistakes we see people make is that they'll import their data from their relational database. Uh, They're going to go ahead and use those auto incrementing, you know, primary keys from their Mm -hmm. tables as their partition keys. and, And they don't realize that the application is never really accessing the data using that value, right? It's always saying, hey, get me all the objects for this you know, customer login or, or get me the, you know, things that are related to this. And, and it's customers don't usually call up a help desk, for example, and say, hey, I'm customer UUID, right? So if your primary access pattern is get the information by customer, then probably using a UUID as a partition key is not a good idea. And using more something like an email or a login name or something like that, that the customer is going to know is better yeah. because if I store the data on the table, <clears throat> that's one cost. If I have to index it, again, that's another cost. Every index I create is an additional chunk of storage, an additional capacity of, of write capacity units that is consumed. So make sure that every time I write the data to the table, that, that there's a meaningful access pattern associated to it. Otherwise, I got to create an index to be able to read the data, and that's just some dead data. Now, that's definitely a write optimization. But the other thing to consider when you're optimizing for the write versus the read is not just the uh, uh, you know the structure of the data. Uh, but also the velocity access pattern, right? If I'm mm-hmm. not necessarily reading at a high frequency, then maybe an inefficient read is fine and I don't need an index, right? right. I can actually just write all these items on the table and maybe once a week I need to find the exception items. Okay, I'll table scan it once a week. But if I maintain an index or I have a nice efficient read, then I can make that nice efficient query once a week 
but I'm going to pay every single time somebody updates the table, I'm going to pay to maintain the index, right? And I'm going to pay right. the constant storage cost of all those items on the index. So, you know, sometimes the very inefficient read is actually the most cost effective read because, you know, it's the ongoing cost of maintaining the index. So I understand <clears throat> that there's a break point right, when you're trying to find an index. And that breakpoint usually has a lot to do with the velocity of the access pattern, right? If it's not frequently, if it's not frequently accessed or used access pattern, then maybe, you know, optimizing for that read is not a good idea. And instead, we should optimize for the constant cost of the write. Yeah. And I, and I love, I, I love that because this is one of those things that I think most people get wrong. Absolutely. Um, it, it, you know, it's just this idea of saying, I need to be able to access this data in a number of different ways. And you may need to, right. you have to understand <laughs> when and why, how, yeah. you know, how often you need to be able to right. do that. So, so anyway, so there are certainly, there are certainly cases where you can't just only do that. Right. So right. we talked about GSIs briefly. Um, so I do want to get into, into GSIs a little bit more and essentially a GSI, you can, basically choose any two uh, any two uh, attributes, right? And make one the PK and make one the uh, the, the SK. Uh, sometimes we see people do, uh, you know, like we mentioned, uh, the uh, index overloading, well, we can kind of get back into that. But I want to start, um, and I want to kind of reference your your talk that you, you did uh, at the last reInvent 2019. And I've been looking at your table designs. Um, I, I, I posted something on Twitter. I've printed them out. I have a <laughs> highlighter. I make notes. Totally geeking out over it because it really is fascinating to me. And one of the progressions I've seen over the last couple of years, um, and I think this is maybe a change in your thinking too, um, is that you started... Uh, Rather than trying to reuse attributes, um, you know, maybe do things like uh, inverted yeah, yeah. indexes and some yeah. of that stuff, you've actually created new attributes that are specifically labeled GSI one PK or GSI two right. PK. And you mentioned this earlier; you're copying data, so you're denormalizing data not just across the table, but right. actually in the same in record the same sometimes. Item. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Same item in order to uh, in order to do that. So just what, what's the so yeah, so a lot of times we'll do this because you know maybe I'm going to use I, I actually want to create an index on the sort key dimension, right? But right. Uh, there's a lot of items on the table, and not all of those items on the table do I want to have that sort key index, right? So simply flipping the PK and the SK is going to will cause every single item on the table to translate to the GSI. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're exactly correct. It's been a kind of an evolution in thinking. It's also an evolution in the complexity of the application services that we've been working with, uh, because that's becoming much more of a common case now that we've got lots and lots of types of partitions on these tables, some of which we want to have, you know, reverse indexed and, and others we don't. And so in those cases, what we'll do is we'll take that sort key and we'll copy it right, to another attribute on the table. And then we're going to create a GSIPK on that extended attribute. And that kind of filters out all the items that we don't want if I just took the sort key and the partition key and flipped them around. Uh, so in some cases can save a significant amount of money to the customer. Right. Yeah, because you you mentioned that if you just do the you know the inverted index and you you flip the the PK flip and the, the SK yeah. for a GSI one uh, for for the, another GSI, uh, the problem is that every single um, every single SK value then gets indexed and then yeah. all of the attribute data you know depending on projections yeah. we'll talk about that in a second but um, those all get copied. So by not doing that, by only and, and this is something that I think is a extremely powerful. Um, uh, extremely powerful sort of, I guess, technique maybe, right. but is this idea of sparse indexes, exactly. right? Yeah, where, yeah. yeah, where you you just take a little bit of, you take the data and you put it in a field and if there's, or in an attribute, and if there is no data in that attribute, whether it's the PK or the SK, it doesn't get copied over. That's correct, yeah. 
I mean, if the attribute exists on the item, then the item gets copied. If the item, if the attribute does not exist on the item, then it just sits on the table and never goes to the GSI. So this is the technique that we'll use, like you said, when I, when creating the just the inverted index with the key flip is going to cause a problem. Uh, and and that and why might that cause a problem? Well, because some of those items are going to have things like uh, maybe a date stamp hash UUID. And, I, and that, right. that's a useless value on a- You're never going to be I'm able to query, query on it, yeah. right? So why do I want to pay to store it and replicate it and do all that, right? So, and we've got a lot of more of those complex use cases these days that are requiring that. So it's just that, that that pattern's always been around. It's been a lot less of a common case. Now it's becoming more of a common case. So we talk more to it. Yeah, and I think the the other thing that I sort of noticed about doing this is um, you had mentioned you've always said this for quite some time that uh, you know NoSQL doesn't mean flexible, right? It's not right. a flexible <laughs> yeah. data model. Um, but what you did say uh, in your talk at 2019, at reInvent 2019, was you know that if you're sort of using this, and I didn't quite reference it the same way, or maybe I was just reading through the lines, or I'm just too much of a geek and I, I picked up on it. But this idea of um, there is some flexibility here, especially if you do this copying of attributes within the same item, you can go back and run some sort of batch query, redecorate yeah. the items, move some things around. Um, and if you're not relying on existing attributes in a sense, there is actually some flexibility there, right? Oh, there absolutely is. I mean, we've, we've, we've now had to go back and extend, revisit, retool, you know, you know hundreds of, of services that were built as part of the migration to Amazon, as you can imagine. I mean, applications don't just stay static forever. Right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, in many cases, like I said, it's just simply add a new partition type, uh, maybe add a new GSI or overload an existing GSI in a different way, right? If I'm adding new types of items, I get to reuse all my existing GSIs again, right? Because mm -hmm. those items need to be indexed. And, you know, I have, let's say, three indexes on the table. Every new item type I add can be indexed up to three times without having to create a new additional index. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, it gives you a lot of flexibility. If I need to regroup the existing items and the existing attributes, need to maybe refine those access patterns somewhat, I can, like you said, do a table scan. Let's do a slight ETL. Maybe we annotate those existing keys with an additional composite or we change the hierarchy of the composite or something. Uh, but yeah, it's not, it, you know, it's not impossible, right? It's just a simply a process. And, and honestly, as I've gone more and more through this process, I don't see how it's different than relational. I just don't. Right. I mean, we went through all this with relational databases, right? I got to add a new column. Oh boy, what's a? It can't have a default value, but it has to have a default value. Oh my gosh, it's a terabyte table, right? right. I mean, so it'll be three weeks while the database is offline, right? I mean, this or, or adding an in, or adding an index, <laughs> even adding, adding an index. index. Right, exactly. Oh, jeez. Yeah. It's like I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go take a two week vacation exactly. on large tables and come then come back. back. Exactly. I mean, these are these are things that the, I mean, it's just kind of like look, altering the data model stinks. It's always been a pain. I don't I right. don't know if it's any more of a pain in NoSQL now. Now that I've done this, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of times, I, I don't think it's any harder. I think the one thing that might be different is that the, the ETL portion of the process is more up to you as a developer. Yeah, true. Uh, like in, a, in a relational database, when I add an index and things like this, it just kind of happens in the background. You know? uh, if I if I want to add a column with a default value, I don't have to worry about you know doing a table scan and write back. Uh, mm -hmm. But I mean, other than that, it's not any real difference. So one thing I could say is that at least with NoSQL, when you're doing these types of things, the data is online. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> accessible, right? Each one of these updates right. is in is kind of atomic in its own envelope. Whereas 
you know, that relational database, you had that index, it's like, come back tomorrow, right? So, exactly. you know, exactly. I mean, this is the kind of thing where, and, and it's the other advantage of a cloud native service like DynamoDB is the ability to kind of like add a GSI. And, mm -hmm. you know, I want that GSI to be available quickly. So I'm going to give it a million WCUs for an hour so that it'll very right. quickly suck the data off of the table, populate itself and come online as fast as possible, right? We can't, right. We can't do that in a relational database because you're stealing, you know, IOPS, you're stealing, you know, throughput and bandwidth from your workload when you add that index, right? And so <laughs> all of a sudden, all, every query slows down and you're starting to wonder and what's, what, what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, all right. So another thing that has to do, I think, and, and this is this is important to me, I think, is, is cost optimization. And yeah. um, and that's why thinking about um, you know, sort of these right patterns and optimizing for that. There's another way, um, if you are copying data into a GSI, um, that you can optimize what gets copied over, and that's that's projecting data into those indexes. Yeah. Um, and 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 you can just copy the keys, you can copy some select keys, or you can or, or you can project all of that. Um, and so obviously it depends on the pattern, but um, but just let's talk about projections for a second. Sure. So projections are one of the most powerful features of DynamoDB. It's the ability, as you said, to restrict the data that hits the index, right? So uh, in like document databases, like DocumentDB or MongoDB, when I create a compound index, uh, <clears throat> I'm able to project additional attributes onto the index, but it, for each attribute I add to the index, it increases the complexity of the insert, right? Because mm -hmm. I, you know, those are essentially sorting dimensions, right? So if I say I want these three attributes on the index, I get to sort by those three dimensions every single insert that I make. So that becomes a significant overhead on the system. Whereas DynamoDB, what you're going to do is you're going to specify those two keys, the partition key, the sort key. We don't sort on any other attributes, but you can choose what other attributes you want to project into that right. And we'll go ahead and just take those attributes along, store them on the index. Now, when I query the index, I don't have to, I don't just get the items that matched. I get the items that matched plus the data that I projected. Mm -hmm. That saves me a round trip back to the table to go get the items, you know, get the data from those items. So like if you look at MongoDB or, or DocumentDB, when you look at a, a query and you explain the query, it's going to tell you two numbers. It'll say documents returned and documents scanned. If documents returned is X and documents scanned is zero, that means that the query was covered by the index. It means every mm -hmm. attribute that I requested existed on the index definition. That is extremely rare. It almost never happens, right? right. Uh, usually what I'm doing when I query a document database is saying, get me those documents. So, or get me some subset of those documents, yep, right? get me yep. something from those documents. Uh, <clears throat> so this is two things that happen in that situation. You're going to get a query explained back that says documents returned X, documents scanned X. That means I found all the documents on the index and uh, I get to go back to the collection and get all those documents. And, oh, I have no choice, but I'm going to return the entire document because that's the only choice the document database gives you, right? So you're going to read the entire mess right so if you've got a bunch of 16 megabyte documents and what you're really requesting is just kind of like you know a couple kilobytes of data mm -hmm. then you get to read all those 16 megabyte documents and pull that couple kilobytes of data out and serve it up so very inefficient yes. one of the best things about the uh, dynamo db is it just lets you choose which parts of the data that you need to tag along for that pattern right maybe this item might be a couple hundred kilobytes but that pattern only needs five kilobytes of data I'll only project the five kilobytes onto the right. index, right? So it's right. a lot more efficient. 
Yeah. And I think that what you what you see is, again, people just sort of copy over that index in there. Uh, or, and and I, I see this all the time. It's just like, oh, well, I'll just copy all the data over because right, right. it's just easier than <laughs> I have it. Right. All copy uh, all. Right. Project. Yeah. All. And, yeah, yeah. and I think I think that that in some cases, maybe that makes sense. But I, I think in a lot of other cases, it doesn't make sense. Because, no, again, every bit of data you're writing over, every attribute you copy is costing you. And if you start going over, mm-hmm. you know, that one kilobyte, uh, you know, that right. Uh, limit, then you're, you're using more and more of these capacity yeah. units, these right capacity units to do that. Um, so the other uh, uh, bit of optimization around um, uh, around that, though, is that if you, and again, this depends on the ac- the access pattern, but if you were to write, um, if you were to write just the keys, for example, maybe you have an infrequent access pattern, right. um, you have to think about, and I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with me on this, you'd have to think about how often do you need all of that data? Like, is there a way that maybe right. you just need that? And then it might be cheaper to go look that up on the primary index yeah, once where, you where have the data. Match, right. As a matter of fact, a great use case for this, multiple service teams inside of Amazon look for exception cases, right? They don't expect exception cases. And when they get right. those exception cases, they don't expect very many of them. And so what we do is we maintain, but they, but they need to check quite frequently, right? So in our order processing workflows, for example, yeah. if orders are languishing, right, we got to get those things out. I mean, we got prime customers, they've got to get shipments out at fulfillment center orders are languishing. We need to know. We need to know in minutes, right? So they're literally running these types of exception handlers every you know five to ten minutes, and all they're really doing is just looking for things that are in a state that is considered to be a languishing state or an error condition state that must be expedited. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, those queries are coming back empty. Every now right. and then they come back with a handful of items. So what are we really interested in? We're just interested in the keys, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, these items are an exception, Kate. Okay, go get those items and notify somebody and run the escalation workflow. Don't, But we don't have to store all those items on the table all the time because most of the time we don't even get any items. And when we do, it's not a big deal for us to go get them from the table. So save the, the throughput, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then one last thing on optimization here. And again, I think I'm I'm not trying to take money away from Amazon. I'm just trying to let people know, you know, that there's uh, some good ways that you can you can think about this. And one of those is the the attribute name itself. Right. So yes. the that the the size of the attribute names that affects the size of the item. Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. In all NoSQL databases, not just DynamoDB. Right? Oh, of course. Of course not. Yeah, of course. Really hidden gotchas. In fact, one of my favorite stories is from my days at MongoDB. I was working with a university customer. I think 80 percent of the data they had in their system was uh, attribute names and 64, oh, 64 terabytes of data. So, oh, my <laughs> yeah. So when you think about you know, the the impact of that, right? Every item I write to the database carries a copy of those attribute names. So as a developer, I mean, obviously the simplest thing to do would be do one, two, three, four, five, or, you know, A, B, C, D, but that's obviously not very meaningful. And right. you don't want to have to map all that. But if you use kind of meaningful abbreviations, right? Like yeah. customer ID, CID. Okay, your developers are going to understand what CID means. You know, these are going to become kind of just parts of your vocabulary. Please do that. You'll save yourself a fortune in the long run, especially at scale. That's Yeah, kind of, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So another thing that GSIs allow you to do, uh, and this is, you know, you explained this brilliantly in your, uh, uh, in, in your, your talks, um, but it allows you to actually do a lot of really cool 
relational modeling. Mm -hmm. um, and there's things like Z index and, um, you know, uh, there's, you know, you can do sort of graph or edge nodes and some oh, of this yeah. other fancy stuff. And I, I, there's a whole bunch of stuff on the, uh, uh, on the Amazon website that kind of explains some of this. But I think one that is really, really interesting is this idea of adjacency lists. Sure. Could you just explain that quickly? Yeah, sure. So now, you know, adjacency lists have been around a long time, right? Adjacency list is really a graph. Uh, a graph is uh, nothing more than, and it's at its core, a many-to-many -many relationship, right? You right. have a bunch of nodes. Nodes have relationships with each other. Nodes can be related to many others, and, you, and, and nodes can have many related to them, right? So what we're really doing <clears throat> when we build a, an adjacency list on a DynamoDB table is we're just creating a lot of partitions on the table that are related to each other, right? Those partitions are kind of like nodes, right? We can have, in the example we're talking about, uh, which was sales salespeople and, and customers, we got customer nodes and sales rep nodes. And every time a customer you know, buys something, our sales rep sells something to a customer, we create a relationship between that customer and that sales rep. And the way we do that is by sticking an item into the customer's partition that says, hey, I have an edge that points to this guy. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the first item we stick inside of the customer's partition would be the customer item. Right, it describes the customer. So we have that's the partition key is the customer ID, the sort key is the customer ID, and then we have some extended attributes that describe the customer name, login, email, all that stuff. Uh, then let's say a sales rep comes along and sells something to the customer. We can put an item inside of that customer's partition that's sorted on the sales rep ID. Right. And inside of that item, we could say, well, what did the customer sell on what date and how much? Right. right? Mm -hmm. And so that's how he's related to the customer. Right. So if you kind of get the idea, what are we doing? We're building a graph. We're, we're putting edges into the graph and these edges yeah. have properties that describe those relationships. So it's kind of the same thing as having you know, two tables with a mapping table in between them, right? That, that many, right. many relationship. Right. Now, inside of that structure, I've got a table with the edges inside of one partition. So I've got customer partitions, I've got sales rep partitions and the customer partition has all these edges, but the sales rep partition doesn't. So it's a directed right. graph, right? Yeah. It means that the customer knows what sales reps he's related to, but the sales rep doesn't. So if I want to create an undirected graph, right, where both sides know, you know, what they're connected to, then I'll create a GSI. And in mm -hmm. the GSI, what I'll do is I'll take the sort key and the partition key and I'll just flip them around. And now all the items, when I query by sales rep, I'm going to see all those edges for all the customers that he's related to, right? Because all those edges were sorted on the sales rep ID inside of the customer partitions. When I flip the partitions around now, they're going to be sorted on the customer ID inside of the sales rep partition. That gives me the ability to query the other side of the many-to-many -many relationship. So this is one of the things about you know <laughs> data modeling in NoSQL that's an interesting exercise because it demonstrates that I do not have to denormalize to be able to maintain these many-to-many -many relationships. Right. Yes. And that is a very important you know a, a, a learning, so to speak. Right. Because you know a lot of people will go ahead and create two documents, one for the customer, one for the, for the sales rep. And inside of each document, they'll update the other yeah, with, you know, yeah. with the order and the details and all of this. And that's how they're going to track those many to minis. But that is problematic, right? I mean, that is there's a lot of work you have to do with the application layer. What happens if I update one half of the relationship and not the other? You know, <laughs> and what happens yeah, if exactly. the dies in the middle? You know, I mean, all kinds of crazy things can happen, right? So using this type of construct, which is, you know, I, I just make an insert onto the table. There's a 100% SLA guarantee in DynamoDB that, that that GSI replication will absolutely occur. You yeah. can count on the fact that both of those relationships are going to get updated. And that's, that's actually very, very powerful. Yeah. And there is, and I, like I said, there is a lot of information out there that the, the uh, best practices, uh, DynamoDB best practices on the AWS site uh, explain some of this stuff as well, but it's just, it is very, very cool. And, and I will say I, I had modeled quite a few tables using that 
um, and trying to do these overloaded indexes and reuse attributes and S case and things. And then as soon as I changed to doing it with these separate GSI attributes and so forth, they it, all it actually makes it, it makes it so much easier. Oh, yeah, it makes yeah. it so much easier yeah, to yeah. do. So uh, yeah. if you're, if you're confused with DynamoDB modeling, really take this approach of, of that, uh, yeah. those extra, extra attributes for GSIs. All right. So one of the things that you have never mentioned, or at least I don't think I've ever seen you mention it, uh, at least not in your, um, uh, in, in any of your talks for your modeling, uh, is local secondary indexes. Uh -huh, yeah. And I used to think, hey, this is great. They've got really strong guarantees. And then, you know, it's sort of this great use case if you want to do a couple different sorts. Um, but LSIs are not quite... Um, They're not the panacea you might think they are. Yeah. Yes, correct. <laughs> and that's part one of my chat with Rick Houlihan. Join us next week as we finish our discussion on advanced NoSQL data modeling with DynamoDB. I want to give a huge thank you to Rick for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 34. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. Yeah.